Um, I, I say this a lot, but we call it our family gathering because we believe that we're the family of God because of what Jesus has done for us. And so when we get together, it's, we, we hope that it's kind of like a family uh, that's just getting together to encourage one another, to be reminded of what God has done for us uh, through Jesus in the gospel, to be encouraged, to be sent out, because we're the church everywhere that we go if we belong to Jesus. So um, I just want to mention one, one thing. Um, there are a ton of kids this morning. Uh, <laughs> and it's, uh, many of you are like, no kidding. Um, cause they're, they're, you know, running around everywhere, just, uh, especially over the summer, but I just want to mention this as we move into the fall. Um, I use this analogy a lot. It, we, I, I already said that we're the family of God, right? And, uh, when families get together, they get together for a family meal and there's an expectation about being a family that, that everybody in the family participates and, uh, and that everybody in the fam- family is valued and has a place in that family. And one of the needs that our, our family has is the fact that God has blessed us with a lot of kids. Um, and so we uh, are kind of always on the look for, out for people to, to help teach them and encourage them and to help them to, to grow in their faith. You may not know anything about how to do any of that for kids. You may not even like kids. Um, but <laughs> um, they're part of our family too. And, and I... Here's the thing, I, I, I really believe this, that as we, as we step into things that are uncomfortable, um, God has a way of showing up and blessing us in ways that we didn't anticipate. And so um, I just want to encourage you, as you think about Sundays as part of our family, especially as you're getting to know us, think about this more like a family dinner and less like going out to eat. You know, because like when you go out to eat, you kind of pay a fee and then you sort of expect everybody to do everything for you, Right. But a family dinner is different. Everybody participates. And we kind of see our Sunday gatherings like that. So just want to encourage you with that. If you, if you, uh, you, you can talk to me about, um, about kids or you can talk to Fiona, our director, um, if you'd like to serve in any way. And we would love to have you. All right. Um, we have been in uh, the book of Hebrews now for several weeks. We are uh, we're going through a series in that book called Greater. Uh, and just to reorient us so you remember again where we are, because we were downstairs last week, the, the Hebrews is a, a letter that's been written to a community of first century Jewish followers of Jesus. And this community is struggling. They're struggling with fear. They're struggling with doubt. They're struggling with discouragement. And they're finding it incredibly and increasingly difficult to follow Jesus in a world that is hostile to him. And they're, they're in a, an urban environment where there's a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different religions that are happening. And they're one among many different worldviews. And they're feeling the pressure kind of closing in on them. And the, the author has written this letter to encourage them and what he's been saying throughout this letter, is the reason we're calling the series Greater, is if you want to be able to overcome that fear, if you want to move through those doubts, if you want to find your way past the discouragement, don't look back, which is what they're being tempted to do, is to, to run back to old habits and old rituals and old belief systems and old people and old things. 
They want to go back because that seems like the easier route. It seems like, well, things weren't as bad before this Jesus guy came into our lives and started messing everything up. Um, and, and But in fact, what the, the author is telling them is, you know, all those people that you want to run back to, like Moses and Abraham and David, they were all looking forward to what you have. They... they They weren't running back to something else. They were looking ahead. And you actually are the recipient of someone greater. And because you're the recipient of someone greater, you have access to to more than they ever did before. And so don't look back. Look at the one who's been sent, the one that they were looking forward to, and that person is Jesus. And so we're we're looking at Jesus through the, 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 the lens of this letter of Hebrews, and we're finding that he's greater. He's greater than everything that we could possibly look at, greater than any other source that we could try to find our satisfaction in and our security from. So so today we're going to talk about kind of that most crucial element of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, and that's faith, which is a terribly misunderstood word these days. Um, But we're going to be looking at it. Last week we down when we were downstairs, we looked at several examples of faith, kind of the back end of of chapter eleven. And today we're going to rewind and sort of look at the first half of uh, of Hebrews eleven, which is going to be on eight forty three. If you're going to pull one of the Bibles out from under the seats, you can follow along. We're going to start in verse one, and I think yes, they'll they'll be on the screen as well. So this is uh, Hebrews eleven verse one. We're going to read to verse thirteen. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were his heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, 
came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Now there's a lot there and a lot of examples there. Um, But the essence of what the writer is saying to these people that are struggling with doubt, struggling with discouragement, struggling with fear again, is a life of faith. The faith is essentially the antidote to discouragement and doubt. Um, now, we have, as I already mentioned, we have huge misunderstandings about what faith is and what faith means. And this passage helps to correct, actually, many of those misconceptions if we look at it correctly. Um, so what do we mean by faith? What does he mean by faith? What does it mean to be a person of faith? What does it mean to, to live by faith? What are the elements of this whole deal called uh, faith? And I think there, there are four of them that are, are kind of highlighted within this passage that I want to cover for us uh, this morning. And, and those four are that faith is reasonable, faith is personal, faith is foundational, and faith is built on a promise. Faith is reasonable, personal, foundational, and it's built on a promise. It's a response to a promise. All right, so reasonable. Um, If you look at verses 1 and 3, it's pretty um, countercultural to the way that we think about faith. Because it says in verse 1, now faith is what? Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That word confidence is to prove something through evidence. In fact, if, if you've been around for a while and you the, the hymns that we sung before, if that, those are like your bread and butter, then, then the translation of the Bible that you probably read as you were growing up and kind of getting to know the faith was that faith is what? The evidence of what we hope for. It's evidential. There's rational, rationale to it. There's, there's re, good reasons behind it. Uh, verse 3 says, By faith that we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. That word understand is to think. It's to reason something out. It's to have good reasons behind what you believe. See, so, um, People that are really skeptical about faith will often say things like, I don't have enough faith to believe. But what this is telling us is that faith is not something that you enter into blindly. It's not, it's not that you check your brain at the door in order to have faith. You actually use the brain that God gave you in order to discover something. So if you were to paraphrase just the first couple verses, it would be something like that faith is this reasonable, thoughtful perception that the world that we see with our eyes cannot be all that there is. That if you, if you look at the world, that there, there is an unseen reality at work behind absolutely everything that's happening. Faith is living with an understanding that this material world, the things that you can touch, see, taste, and smell, 
don't make sense, actually, if you don't also have an unseen supernatural world that's happening behind the scenes. That, that both of those things go together. And if you remove one from the equation, that actually what you and I experience doesn't make a lick of sense. Um, I had a professor in, in uh, graduate school, uh, Dr. Zimmerman, who used to say that Christianity is the only worldview that holds the weight and freight of the entire world. It's, it's the only worldview that you can adopt that actually makes sense of absolutely everything that we experience. And if you try to make sense of it through any other worldview, literally what you need to do is check your brain at the door. You need to willfully or, un, un, or un, unconsciously um, deny certain things about the way that the world works. What do I mean by that? Um, C.S. Lewis in the book Mere Christianity, which is one of the very first books I read as a new believer, um, goes into great detail about uh, how life just doesn't make sense. And he spent several decades as, a, a, as an atheist uh, before he became a Christian. And, and this is one of the things that he says in that book about his experience before coming to know God. And it has to do with how you know uh, the difference between right and wrong. Right? So all of us have this kind of general sense that there is some sort of moral underpinnings of the world that certain actions are right and certain actions are wrong. And he, he, he tries to go into why we feel that way. And this is what he says. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. How many of you ever felt that way? You look at the world and you go, how, how has the world possibly looked this way? But how had I gotten this idea of what's just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up on my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not just simply that it did not please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. See, he's saying if this seen world is all there is, if there is no supernatural, if there is no God, if it's only what's visible, if it's only what's natural, if we're here by accident essentially in a series of random events with no purpose or meaning behind it, that that means that it's impossible to determine if anything is really good or bad, to determine if any action is really right or wrong. And you might feel as though something like murder is wrong, but if humans have no purpose, if there is no supernatural behind the scenes, if there's no straight line to snap things to, then you have no basis to say whether or not it's right or wrong. It's your opinion. And yet, just like Lewis, we have this unavoidable, irrefusable, irrepressible awareness that some things are wrong. 
that it's not okay to murder another human being. That it's not okay to take disadvantage of the poor. That it's not, there's all kinds of things we look out in the world and we say, that's not right. Where do we get that from? See, if this seen world is all there is, then we have no way to reconcile the way that you feel about the brokenness of the world with this, with your reality. Faith says that the reason that we implicitly know that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong is because this world, what we can see, has been made at the command of someone who's unseen. That, That there is a God and He has snapped a straight line and that this world has deviated from that reality. And because, and because you're made in the image of that God and you desire what He desires, which is a world that operates according to justice, that, that, that is a world full of love and righteousness, that when that doesn't happen, you don't feel good about it. And, and something stirs inside of you. And you either have to deny that feeling if you, if you really are an atheist and you're thinking about it, because who's to say what's right and wrong? Or you get in touch with that feeling and you start using your brain and you say there must be a God behind the scenes because I wouldn't feel this way if there wasn't. Do you see? It's more reasonable when you think about a world of, of real rights and real wrongs to, to believe that God exists rather than there, there is no God. You have to do more mental gymnastics to take God out of the equation than if you leave him in. And that's just one aspect. And we're just talking about morality. What, what, what about joy and pleasure? Do you realize none of that makes sense if there is no God either? A lot of people that I know and talk to that have a problem with this idea of faith... Um, hold on to this idea because, in a sense, they believe that they can live a more pleasurable life without the knowledge that there is a God, right? Because, like, if there's no God, like, looking over your shoulder, then who cares what you do? Like, just live for yourself and have a good time, right? And, And that's the way so many people live out their everyday lives. Basically saying, I'm going to do whatever makes me feel good. There's a problem, though. Because, again, if you remove God from the situation, things get hairy. Lewis, again, says this. You cannot truly be in love with a girl if you know and keep on remembering that all the beauties of both her person and her character are just accidental patterns produced by the collision of atoms and that your own response to them is only a psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. How's that for a mouthful? It took me a while. I had to practice that sentence for a while. You can't go on getting pleasure from music either if you know and remember that the significance you feel is a pure illusion, that you like it only because your nervous system is conditioned to like it. And so every time pleasure threatens to push on you, from, push you on from mere existence into real warmth and enthusiasm and joy, you will be forced to deny that this universe is not all there is in order to keep holding on to that pleasure. You see? If, this, if there is no unseen, if there is no supernatural, if there is no God 
who has designed you to experience joy, then the only alternative to that is that it's your DNA that's causing you to like something or dislike something, causing you to feel like you're having this emotional uh, connection with someone that we call love, but which is really just your, your, your genes uh, acting on your nervous system so that you can propagate the species. And as soon as you think about it that way, doesn't it remove the joy? Because you go, that's not real joy. I'm just a robot. See, even your happiness makes no sense if this world is all there is. As soon as you concede to the fact that there are rights and wrongs and that there is this real things called love and joy and satisfaction and hope, then you can't... Hold on to those things and at the same time, if you're thinking, hold on to the fact that there is no God. You just can't do it. The two don't go together. Faith helps you make sense of the world. It helps you interpret what you see and what you experience in ways that are deeply resonant. It says that there is a God who made everything at his command and that he's full of love and joy and kindness and goodness, which is why I get to experience those things. But the world is broken. There are things that are wrong in it, and I'm not okay with it. And the reason I'm not okay with it is because God's not okay with it. Do you see why Christianity is the only worldview that holds the weight and freight of the whole world? It's the only one that reconciles all those realities into something that you can live with if you're thinking. Because faith is reasonable. It's not turning off your brain. It's using the brain that God gave you to see His influence on everything. But it's not just rational. It's not just reasonable. It's also personal. Look at the... You know, we we look through the list here with all these different people. It says, by faith... Noah, when warned about the things he had not not yet seen, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as an, as an inheritance. You look through the list, and what you find is pretty interesting with all these different characters, Noah and Abraham and Moses. Um, it's Again, it's counter what we often think about what faith is. Most people think that what faith is is the lack of asking questions, right? Just have faith, don't ask questions. And, and, and again, people have a real problem with this because they go, I just can't turn off the questions, therefore I can't have faith. No, 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 not if you look at these guys. Because you, you look at these guys and, and what you start to see is that they had deep questions. In fact, faith caused them to ask more questions than you and I are really comfortable with. Moses, right? He's a prince of Egypt. He's living in the house of Pharaoh. He has everything at his disposal. And yet God comes into his life. And what happens? He, yeah, he questions everything, right? Abraham, part of a wealthy family living a good life in this great city called Ur. I mean, if you were going to live anywhere, you'd want to live in Ur. <laughs> yeah? um, see, he's got safety, he's got prosperity, he's got status, and yet God comes into his life and he, and he hears the call of faith and what happens to him? 
He leaves everything. He questions everything. He gets out. He moves on. See, um, I don't know if you know this about the human race, but you've probably experienced this in your own heart. Um, Our default mode is to go with the flow. It's our default mechanism is to just go along with what everybody else is doing. It's the crowd mentality. Um, and, and so what is the what is the crowd doing these days? It's going to college, getting a good job, getting married, having kids, buying a house that we can't afford, hoping to retire comfortably. It's, it's essentially living for yourself. It's living according to your own narrative where you are the star of the show and everything revolves around you. That's the flow. And, and here's what faith is. Faith is a personal, radical encounter with God that calls you out of that flow and starts to, 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 to bring in questions that you never thought of before. It's God coming into the midst of your life and saying, I want you personally. I don't... I don't just want you to know about me. I want you to know me and I want to walk with you and I want you to follow me. And nothing, nothing can substitute for a relationship with me. Faith is personal. You you can't, it's it's an individual call of God into your heart where you hear His voice, you experience His presence, and you can't, it's the one thing that you can't siphon off of somebody else. You can't live a, you can't experience faith through the, the medium of your parents. Or through the medium of your pastor. Or through the medium of your church. It just doesn't work that way. It's individual. God says, I want you. And, and here's the thing. When that, when He comes into your life and starts to speak to you like that, it begins to undermine the foundations of everything that you thought was secure before. It, it causes you to ask questions about everything. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am, what am I going to college for? What am I making money for? Why do I want a retirement? I mean, yeah, that's what everybody else is doing, but is that what God's calling me into? It, it, 20 years of, of sitting around at the beach? I don't know. What am I living for? What am I using my time and my money for? See, faith isn't suspending all the questions. Faith causes you to ask real questions, deep questions about what your life is actually all about. It, it causes you to look at your priorities and your values and your beliefs. How you spend your time and your money. How you raise your kids. What, you, what is the goal of your existence? And it will, if you let it, redirect the flow of your entire life. It's it's not enough just to believe generally that there's a God and that He rewards those who seek Him. It's not enough to just intellectualize that. You need to respond to His individual call, His individual voice, His personal presence. And unless you've done that, you haven't experienced faith. That doesn't mean you can't, because I think God is willing, but maybe your ears have been closed to it. What does that feel like, right? I'll tell you what it feels like, felt like for me. 
Um, I was 21 when I experienced that individual calling of Jesus on my life. And it's not that I was an atheist before that. Uh, I grew up in a home and, and was part of a church that taught about the Bible and taught about the gospel. And I knew that Jesus had died for my sins and rose again, that he was living and active. I knew that he would return once again because I said it every week in the creeds. But I didn't experience him. Not until I was 21 and my life became a train wreck. And I realized that I was using God in order to get the life that I wanted. I claimed to be a, a religious person and that's exactly what I was. I was someone who leveraged God for my own ends rather than him being an end of himself. And I experienced the call of God not coming in to condemn me for the way that I had lived, but coming in to release me so that I would live for him. And I came to this watershed moment, March 1st, 2001, where I was up at like 2 in the morning, and suddenly I realized that if God is real and Jesus did come and that he's sitting on the throne and he paid for my sins and he gave himself completely for me, how in the world could I continue to expect him to be a sideline character in my show? I couldn't. I had to give my heart and my life completely and totally to him and say, you do with whatever it is that you want to do with me because I'm making a wreck of things. And he did. And he is. And he will be. I realized it was all or nothing. It was either or. Either I was going to walk away from him completely and deny that he existed, or I was going to fall at his feet and give him everything. And that's what it looks like. And when that happens to you, you start to see and experience what we see in the life of all of these examples of faith. Personal, irreversible, all or nothing sorts of encounters with God. Now, that may happen in a lightning bolt of one evening at two in the morning like it did for me, or it may happen over the course of a season where suddenly you realize that everything has changed. It doesn't matter how it happens, but somewhere it happens where it drops from your head into your heart and you realize you can't be the same again. And I, I've talked to several of you about that transition happening recently, which has been so awesome to hear about that God has done that work, even in our family, just in the last year. Where you go from having a sort of possessing a general knowledge about God to realizing that you are His possession and that He's never going to let you go. Has faith moved from being rational to personal? Has He gone from a concept to a person? to a reality that you can't escape from. That's faith. But here's the other thing that is. Faith is a, is a foundation. See, God doesn't just <clears throat> kick out the foundation that you were living on before to, to leave you stranded. Faith is actually building up a new foundation that can hold your weight. I love what um, it says about Abraham in verse 8. That... that uh, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Um, <laughs> I love this about Abraham. Every time you think, like, 
Abraham's check the box on faith, like something else happens, you know? It's like, because he gets out and goes, right? Which you think, like, would you leave behind everything that you knew and just move out into a desert expecting that God was going to keep speaking to you? I don't know if you would or not, but Abraham did. And you think, man, like, if, if, if you and I showed that level of faith in, like, what God had said and did that, you'd think, man, I'm good for the rest of my life, you know? Like, I, I've proven myself. Like, I never have to do that ever again, you know? Like, that was the big one. And it, it wasn't the big one for Abraham. It was just the start of a series of things. Because uh, God, he keeps talking to him. And, he, and God says to him, go, right? This is the first one. Abraham says, where? And God goes, I'll tell you later. And then he goes, you think, man, like that's it. Like he, he did it, right? And then Abraham arrives in the land and God says, settle down. And Abraham says, when is this all going to happen? And God says, I'll tell you later. And, and then God says, um, I know you want to have kids and I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham goes, how? We're like ancient here. And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. And then he has that son, and then God finally says to him, I want you to take your one and only son, whom you love. And I want you to carry him up to the top of this mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just go. What's, what in the world is going on in Abraham's life? Like, why is God being so sadistic? Verse 10 tells us, he was looking for, forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. That, that what seemed cruel and unusual punishment to Abraham was actually a process that God was taking him through where all these moments of decision where Abraham was either going to fall into dependency and faith on God or fall away from him, all of those were helping Abraham to discover that he was moving into greater foundations and greater security every step he took with God. That God was actually training him not to put his foundations in this world. If you go back and look, children, wives, land, money, status, all these things, God is presents Abraham with a choice. Are you going to find it in something else or are you going to find it in me? And, and every single one of those moments is a decision point where Abraham is going to make a foundation on something and someone. And, and what God was saying to him is, this place that, that I've brought you to, this world that you live in, has no foundation. There is nothing permanent in this life. Those of you who have been around the block a few times realize that because you've lost things that have been deeply meaningful to you. You you can't hold on to anything in this world and expect that it's going to be there for you forever because not even you're going to be here forever. There is no foundations in this world. And when you try to make anything in this world your foundation, be it your status or your job or your family or your money, what are you doing? You're standing on something that's not secure. And the, the foundation is crumbling beneath you even though you think you're solid. Now, 
if you've built your life on a crumbling foundation, which we all have, I'm included in this, I mean, not even the lights stay on. <laughs> um, if you've built your life there, what is God in His infinite love and His mercy going to do for you? He's going to, because He loves you, bring you to moments of crisis. Do you know what a crisis is? It's a fork in the road where you can't go straight anymore. Something happens to you and you realize I either have to go this way or that way because I can't keep going this way. That option has been removed from me. Therefore, I need to take one of two different paths. And at every moment of crisis, you get to, is a moment of decision. And and you get to choose at that point, what are you going to build your foundation on? In every moment, the, 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 every crisis, the thing that you lose in the, in, the, in the time of crisis is probably something that you either have built your life on or are intending to build your life on. And God in His mercy is removing that option from you so that you might have something really secure instead of something that just appears secure. And that, that's what's going on with Abraham. I mean, think of all the things that we build our lives on. We build our life on other people's opinions of us. And God brings us to a crisis point where to follow him means that you're going to do deep damage to the respect that you have from people that you want that respect from. But you realize that if if I'm going to follow him, I'm going to look like a fool in their eyes. And God's going, which one are you going to choose? Are you going to find... Your, your identity in what I say about you and who I've made you to be, or are you going to find it in that person whose opinion is probably going to change next week? We build our lives on financial security. And God calls us out of that. And we lose our job, or he, 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 or he calls us to, to be radically generous to someone who doesn't deserve it. And to obey Him means that you're going to do serious damage to your retirement options. What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? In every place, God is saying, follow me and leave that behind. It was true for Abraham. It's true for us. Because the call of faith is a call away from these other crumbling foundations of security in this world that we keep going back to again and again and again and again. And the reason that God does that is because he realizes how unstable they really are. It's not that they're bad things. They're so oftentimes, the, the things that we try to find our foundation in are good things that we turn into uh, un, you know, things that we can't do without. See, many people think that the opposite of faith is doubt, Right? Not according to this. According to this, the opposite of faith in God is just faith in something else. Every single person on the planet is a person of faith. They might not say it. They might deny it. You may have denied it, or you may still be denying it. That's okay. It's still what you are. 
you're a person of faith. It's just a matter of what you're putting that faith in. It's either going to be in God and it's going to be secure no matter what life looks like or it's going to be in something else which is going to be insecure no matter what your life looks like. That's the only option is what you put your faith in. Not that you have it. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith in God is faith in something else. See, and God is in the business of showing you the instability of everything else. And that's his grace to you. That's his love for you doing that. That at every point, what it means to follow Jesus is that you walk away from something you look to for your security if it weren't for him. Now, there's one more thing. I just got to mention this about foundation before we uh, just cover the last part. Um, we, we often think that faith is like built in these big, huge moments, right? Like the Red Sea and Abraham leaving everything behind and uh, Noah building the ark. We think of faith as being these monumental kinds of watershed moments, that that's where it's built, right? Um, here's, here's my theory. Um, those moments, when they come... They aren't where faith is built. They're where faith is verified. It's like a foundation, right? You don't build a foundation with these enormous stones, boom, right? And just throw them down. How do you build a foundation? One stone, one brick at a time. Day by day, you lay one after another. You know, when you go to Haiti, if and those of you who have been there, you you drive by all kinds of unfinished houses. And they're all at various stages. Because what do they they buy the what they have the money to 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 purchase in terms of materials, and then they build with what they have, and then they go away and then they come back. And the more they build that house, the stronger it is. And and see the the big moments are like the hurricanes that come along and test the fact that you've either built that house securely or you've built it with something that can't stand the storm. And that's what faith is. It's 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 built in the little moments. As you lay that foundation and and all of us are either every single day, every single moment, either laying a foundation that's full of ourselves and and autonomous from God and putting our faith in other things or we're building it in Him. It's those little moments of generosity that nobody sees except for the person who receives the gift from you. It's those closet kind of prayers where you cry out to God and you're desperate to hear from Him and to be connected to Him and nobody else knows it. It's those times when someone offends you in a little way and in your heart and in your mind you forgive them and you don't hold it against them the next time they do it to you. You want to be a person of forgiveness. You want to be a person of generosity. You want to be a person of of prayer and faith. It comes through the little moments. Those little stones that you stack again and again and again and again that equal up to a house that won't fall. Is a storm coming for you? Yeah. 
it probably is. It is for all of us. Either you're in the midst of one or one is on its way. And the question isn't whether it's going to come. The the question is whether or not your house is going to stand when it does. Are you building a foundation in him today? Now, the last part is that faith is built on a promise. It's a foundation that's built on something uh, that's it's not just out of thin air, but it's something that's spoken to us. Because um, here's the thing. All of us have these questions about whether or not God can be trusted, right? All of us aren't quite sure uh, if, if, God, if I can take God to the bank on the things that he said to me. And Abraham had that same question. It, back when he received the first promise, he goes, how can I know? Like, how can I trust you? What evidence do I have? He, he was asking for evidence. You see, we, we think of, of Abraham as a man of blind faith, and yet he needed evidence. Interesting, right? Now, what was that evidence? God said, all right, we're going to make a covenant. We've, we've talked about this several times. I think Matthew brought it up last week. The, the fact that when covenants were ratified, they would take animals and they would split them in two. And then there, there would be, it sounds gory, but there would be all kinds of blood and guts and everything. And, and then the parties who were making the covenant with one another would walk through that mess and basically say, the promises that I've made today, I'm going to commit to. Otherwise, if I don't, I'm going to be like these animals, right? And we, this isn't a foreign concept to many of us because we've talked about this. Now, if you're Abraham and you're you've just made this promise with God and you've heard him make these promises to you and then God says, okay, go get the animals. He's thinking to himself, okay, here's how it gets ratified. God isn't a physical being, so therefore I'm going to have to be the one to walk through it. I'm going to have to hold up my end of the bargain and who knows if God's going to hold up his end of the bargain because he can't walk through it. But those of you who know the story, what happens? God walks through it. And and who doesn't? Abraham. The only one to walk through isn't Abraham, it's God. And it's basically God's way of saying, look, if I don't keep my word, I'm going to pay the penalty. But here's the thing. If you don't keep your word, I'm still going to pay the penalty. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, I'm going to be like these animals. But if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, Abraham and all of your descendants who come after you, I'm still going to go through. Which means no no matter how you mess up, he's still never going to give up on you. And Abraham had faith in God only because God made a promise to him and ratified that promise with an act. Now, again, what does it say about Abraham and, his, and his, uh, the people that came after him? All these people were still living by faith when they, did, when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Abraham saw from a distance what we get to see up close. So what is that? It's Jesus Christ walking through the pieces for us. It's Jesus Christ carrying a cross to pay the penalty for us breaking the promise to be faithful to God. 
It's Him dying on that cross with His arms wide open to us to forgive us of that, that promise broken and that sin that we committed against Him so that He could have us back. That's how you know that he, He's the one who keeps His promises. So much more so for us than for Abraham. Let, let me just ask you, just as we close, because I, I think this will help us. God never asked you to have faith without His Word guiding you into what He wants for you. Another way to say that is, He's made promises to you. They're all over Scripture. They're everywhere. Can I just ask you, from memory, and we can help one another out, what are some of those? What has God said? That He's committed to? Yeah. Yeah, seek my kingdom first. A kingdom with foundations. Which is... Jesus is saying the same thing. Find your security in me and I will add the other things that are good if you don't find your security in them. You look to them for security and you're done for. You look to me and I'll add other things to it, but you won't look to them as a substitute for me anymore. Seek my kingdom first. And and I'm going to take care of you because that's what a good dad does. What else? I saw a couple other hands. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's coming again in glory to set the world right. He's, the first time He came, He came to pay the penalty for sin. The second time He comes, He's going to wash it away completely. He's going to burn it with fire so that the world that's left is a world that, of His dream, of His making, of His imagination. And we all, if we're in Him, get to participate in that world together with those who've gone before us. You realize how crazy that promise is? And if you, if you built that as the foundation of your life, how secure you would be when you go to work tomorrow? It would change everything about the way that you live. What else? I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Those two things alone would change the way that you live the rest of this week, wouldn't they? If you built those as the foundation of your life rather than something else? That He'll renew our strength. Yeah. We, we don't have to live in our own sufficiency day by day, moment by moment. But He's, he's given us a provision called the Holy Spirit to be strong where we're weak, to give wisdom where we're ignorant, to be what we can't be. And if you, if you banked your life on that, what would that look like? It would look like you getting up every morning and going, I don't have to live this day on my own. I don't have to, I don't have to do what I need to do today with my resources alone. I have His resources that's a crazy promise, right? How do you know it's true? Because He died and He rose again and He sent the Spirit. And you have access to Him if you're in, in Christ.
You do. I'm, I, there's so many. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of promises. Go and read them this week. And in every one of those things, ask yourself, am I going to build my foundation on this promise or am I going to live for a different kind of promise that can't fulfill me? I'm telling you, you're going to be radically changed by the time you come back here next Sunday. You are. You can't not be. What a promise we have. What a promise. Faith is reasonable. If you haven't investigated the reasons and the rationale behind the gospel, please do it. Gosh, I am so discouraged by people walking away from the faith without actually doing the work of digging into why the gospel makes sense and is the only way to live. You want a place to start? I already I, I mentioned Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis. Um, read that. If that's the quotes I gave you are a little preview of that. And if you're like, I couldn't read that book, then, <laughs> then read John Stott's Why Am I a Christian? C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, John Stott's Why Am I a Christian? Start there. Investigate. There's good reasons. But don't just stay at reasons alone. Make it personal. Ask God to speak to you. And he'll undermine the foundations of your life. But it'll be backed up by a promise. Let's pray. Father, we um, we just acknowledge that maybe we've bought into a lie about what faith looks like. And we thought that it's turning off our brain or not asking questions or not investigating. And God, would you forgive us of that? Uh, we, we want a faith around here that is um, buttressed by good reasons. And we believe and have faith in the fact that you have um, good rationale behind why a relationship with you makes sense. Um, God, I pray, though, that uh, there are many here that may be listening that um, you've only been a concept to them. You've only been a rational thought rather than a person. And I pray, God, that you would change that even now, that you'd flood into our lives this morning and change us from the inside out. Help us to ask questions we've never asked before and to find our answers in you. God, thank you that our faith is built on a promise. You never ask us to have faith out of thin air, but just simply to believe you at your word. God, would you enable us to do that by the power of your spirit? We have no idea, Lord, where you might take us as we start to lay those small little bricks of faith in you. But we know, because you promised it, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to build our life on that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.